0: You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. And what a great weekend that was, what a great event that was. And anytime uh, we put that much energy and effort and resources into an event, it's because it's something that we think is incredibly valuable. And I do wanna remind you that we have another event that a lot of effort is going into coming up next weekend. That's our Wholehearted Marriage Weekend. And so I said last Sunday that I didn't know when registration closed, so sign up that day. It is actually today, so registration does close today. So if you haven't made plans to be here next weekend, I encourage you to do that. If your marriage is great, come learn something and be an encouragement to the other uh, couples. And I think all of us could uh, learn something. So maybe you're in a place where you really know you need some help. Uh, What a great opportunity this will be for you. If finances are an issue, uh, please reach out to us and let us know. And then Dr. Sean Stover will be uh, here with us on Sunday morning as well. And so we look forward to hearing from him as he brings God's word next Sunday morning. If you're here today visiting with us, or maybe you're watching online for the first time, thank you so much uh, for being with us. It's really an honor and a privilege, and we'd love to know who you are. You can text the word CONNECT to 850-600-6779, and one of our CONNECT team members will follow up with you this week. Uh, We are in a series called Our Brand, uh, which is taking us a couple months, and we are in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, which is taking us several weeks as well. It is best to read verses one through 11 of chapter two together to get the full meaning of what is being said here, but there is just too much uh, in these verses to cover them in a Sunday. So we looked at verses one through four in depth last week and how we as Christ followers have been called to unity of giving our lives humbly, dutifully, and sensitively for the purpose of Christ. And we will look at verses nine through 11 Uh, in two weeks, and we'll have some follow-up on some specific aspects of this in the following weeks. But today, we are looking closely at verses 5 through 8, and as we do, we will spend most of our time understanding, explaining the text, and then I'll come back and apply the text and try to go pretty quickly through that. So let's first read the text. I'm going to read all of verse 1 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, once again, there is no way that I can adequately explain how great you are and how great these words are. And so I pray that your spirit would work in and through me, and it would work in and through everyone who's listening today, and that you would indeed be glorified because of our time in your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to begin with two phrases of explanation. I think one uh, doesn't require a lot of time. The second will require a decent amount of time. And so the first of these phrases of explanation is that the joyful mind is yours in Christ Jesus. The joyful mind is yours in Christ Jesus. Last week, we looked at verses one through four and how God was calling us to this denial of self. And we talked about how this was really a joyful mindset. As we've talked about our brand, we are talking about our brand as followers of Christ, our brand as a church being joy. And that joy and that joyful mind is ours in christ jesus if you look at verse 5 it says have this mind among yourselves which is yours he's pointing back to verses 2 through 4 which we discussed last week and he's saying this joyful mind is yours the unity the humility the duty the sensitivity it is yours this is not a request by paul for you to manufacture something but to tap into it this belongs to To you it's not go out and earn this it's you already have this use it you know if you ever are are involved in sports a lot of times when you're trying to teach someone or coach someone something they already have like the ability to do it you're just trying to help them see they have the ability to do this and what Paul's saying is he's saying to live like this it's yours you can do this he does give a condition though that's important for understanding this he says in verse 5 which is yours in Christ Jesus. So we do not tap into this from our own strength, from our own resources. We depend upon the Holy Spirit to enable us as he conforms us to the image of Christ. You aren't born with this. It comes from Jesus. And I, and I think in Christianity, To fit into the culture, we have a lot of messages, a lot of teaching, a lot of books that are centered around finding our own strength. But if you haven't been crucified with Christ, you are still living. But when Christ is living in you, when he has entered your life, the Holy Spirit is given to us, and the things that the Bible tells us about living for God belong to us so this desire to be unified to deny ourselves for the cause of christ and work together it is ours in christ jesus humility not doing anything from selfish ambition or conceit that is who we are in christ duty not looking to our own interest only but to the interest of others we can do that in christ sensitivity considering others more significant than ourselves we can do that in Christ. This is who you are in Christ Jesus. Okay, I I think that explains that, all right? So um, when we talk about something we have, a privilege we have, I think it is important for us to know how we have that privilege. I I, I think today, probably starting about my age and below, there are a lot of people uh, in our country who enjoy the benefits of freedom but are not regularly mindful of the prices that have been paid for the freedom and opportunity that we have in this country. I think we think about the civil rights movement, and there are a lot that you know continue to push for equality, but aren't ever mindful of what people have went through to get us to the place that we're in where we have the equality that we have. And when we don't think about the price that has been paid And what has been given for us to have that privilege, we really begin to not function, not act the way that we should. And so I I think that we need to look at this reality that we have, the mind is ours in Christ Jesus, and how we have that mind. So the second phrase of explanation, which we'll spend most of our time on this morning, is this. Jesus earned this mind for you. Jesus earned this mind for you. What we do see described in verses 6 through 8 is what theologians call the hypostatic union. Now that sounds fancy, but it's from the Greek word hypostasis, which refers to the substance of something. So the hypostatic union is the phrase that references the substance of Jesus. And it was given this phrase because of the distinctive nature of Christ. Our passage walks us through the basics of this hypostatic union. And again, this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Now, I know that when we start talking about theological terms, some of you are thinking like Billy Madison in chemistry class. You know, chlorophyll, more like borophyll. And you're thinking, hey, I got marriage issues and trying to raise these kids. And you got hypostatic union man talking about God knows what. Yeah, God knows what. (laughs) And this is very important to us because it's in God's word. And so I know you might not be someone who likes that kind of stuff, but please, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the help of the Holy Spirit, focus in on just how good what is contained in these verses is. So so let's look at what it tells us about the nature of Christ. The The first thing, A, he is God. He is God verse 6 who though he was in the form of God. Now I don't love the phrasing though he was in, but honestly I don't like uh, being in very nature God which the NIV and NKJV uses either and the NASB uh, has to take a lot of liberty with their translation who as he already existed in the form of God. So I really sound like the person who sits down in a restaurant and complains about everything. I don't like any of it. And the reason I think I just am not settled with any of it is this is just hard to put in human terms. His state, his nature, his substance is God. I I read one commentary which said, being robed in divine glory. Form, the word form here used in the ESV means nature that word is used in mark chapter 16 verse 12 when it says after these things he appeared in another form to two of them so it's very important to understand that he is god that is his nature that is his substance that is his form there are those who teach that jesus became god that he wasn't god in his eternal state that contradicts the teaching of scripture the jehovah's witnesses changed the whole meaning of this in their translation to change who he was. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation. No scholar who is not a Jehovah's Witness thinks it's any good. And I don't mean this to throw shade. I mean this to say truthfully, Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe the gospel. They do not believe the Bible and what it teaches us about Jesus and they're trained to make you think that we agree the same thing to win you to what they believe but it is a false gospel that has people headed straight to a life without understanding who Jesus is Jesus was already God when he came into the world he was always God there was never a time when he was not God that is what the Bible Says You get that in John's prologue to his gospel, in John chapter 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word. That is a Greek word, logos, which was a word expressive of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word itself was God. Jesus was God when he entered the world, because he is, in his very nature, God. The second thing we see about Jesus from this text, B, is that he let go of his position. He let go of his position. Look at what verse six says, the latter part of it. Did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now again, this is kind of deep stuff. Remember, God never changes. And so if God is existing in three persons at one time, he has always existed in three persons. And one of those aspects of the triune Godhead is the Son. Jesus is the Son, and he was and he is God. The Son would come to the earth and die. To do that, the Son could not hold on to the throne. He had to let go of the throne to come to earth. Now, Mark Cowan says this, Jesus did not consider exploitation of his status power and being as God for his own needs. God the Father remained on the throne while Jesus was on earth, but Jesus did not grasp onto the throne. He relinquished his position. He did not change his nature, but he relinquished his position. If you think about World War II and uh, the fact that there were many prominent businessmen, professional athletes, They were who they were, but they gave up their positions to go to war for our country and for freedom. It did not change who they were, but they let go of their position for the cause of our country. Jesus did not change who he was, but he gave up his position for the cause of the Father. Verse 7 goes on to say, but emptied himself. Richard Mellick says that emptied himself means adding humanity to deity rather than subtracting deity from his person. Brian Chappelle illustrates the idea of Jesus emptying himself by relaying a story from an African missionary. By the way, if you're Googling this, it's Brian Chappelle, not Dave Chappelle. Don't go down that road. Here is what Brian says. In a particular part of Africa, the chief is the strongest man in the village. As the chief, he also wears a very large headdress and ceremonial robes. One day, a man carrying water out of the shaft of a deep well fell and broke his leg and lay helpless at the bottom of the well. To get down to the bottom, one would have to climb down using the alternating slits to go all the way down the deep well and then climb back up. Because no one could carry the helpless man up like this, the chief was summoned. When he saw the plight of the man, he laid aside his headdress and his robe, climbed all the way to the bottom, put the injured man on himself and brought him to safety. He was able to do what no other man could do. That is what Jesus has done for us. He came to rescue us and he laid aside his heavenly glory like the chief did with his headdress in order to save us. Now did the chief cease being the chief when he laid aside His headdress and robe of course not did jesus cease being god when he came to rescue us no he let go of his position but not his nature see he served verse 7 says by taking the form of a servant I think this is one of the most easily understood points here this morning. And for the sake of time, I'll just explain it quickly. When that word servant is translated, it means slave. It means someone who serves a master. And when this word is used here is the word doulos, which means bondservant. It's someone who chooses to serve the master. Jesus chose to serve the father for the purpose of the Godhead, for the purpose of the Trinity. He became a servant. He served. D, he became human. Verse 7 goes on to say, being born in the likeness of men. Remaining all that he was, he became what he was not. A.W. Tozer says, he veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. Verse 8 continues this thought. It says, and being found in human form. Now, there's a change here from the plural of likeness of men to the, the the singular of being found in human form, and it reinforces the union of the natures, God taking on the nature of man. And Charles Ellicott points out his humanity became a permanent part of his deity. Now, those of you who've studied church history will know that for the first three or 400 years, of the church, there were great debates which ensued over the identity of Jesus Christ. People would come up with an idea, then they would convene a council, the council would discuss it, they would rebuke the heresy, and then they would move on. I think they sound very Baptist to me, just saying. And so there were those who denied the reality of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they resisted this phrase, and they taught that Jesus was only a man. That is what Unitarians teach today. The people who fell into this error did so because they were safeguarding the doctrine of what is called monotheism, the belief that there is only one God. And so they felt that if you asserted that Jesus Christ is God, then you would be saying that there were two gods. And when you added the Holy Spirit into that, then of course you would have three. And so in attempting to avoid that, uh, which they must do because they think there's only one God there, they would say, hey, we denied the reality and the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there were those who denied the humanity of Christ. So the first group were saying he really isn't divine. Now the second group is saying he really isn't human and that he has a phantom body and that the eternal Christ came on him at his baptism. Then there's a third group who denies the integration of the two natures of Christ, both human and divine. Arius, and Arianism, which you may have heard of, uh, which emerged from it, is the father of Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and all others who have this distorted view of Jesus. They denied the reality of the divine nature of Christ, declaring Christ to be neither God nor man, but something in between. And so they say he's the first being, the first created being, the highest of all beings that God has ever created. But Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, That Jesus being in very, or sorry, here in Philippians, being very in very nature God. And he says in Colossians chapter 1, without him nothing was made that has been made. So J.B. Phillips paraphrases this helpfully and says, creation took place through him and none took place without him. Therefore, he cannot be a created being. The Nestorians would say that Jesus wasn't one person with two natures, but that he was actually two persons and they got themselves all tied up. Now I could go on because some of you, you love this kind of stuff, but some of you I see that I lost you at the high in hypostatic union. Some of you were checked out when I said high, but that's a whole another issue. You might not think this is relevant, but all of what I'm talking about is alive and well. It's everywhere you look. It's in Harvard and Princeton. It's in Tallahassee and Gainesville. It's in seminaries, it's on YouTube channels, and it's the pews and chairs of Okaloosa County that are hearing this. And it's imperative that you and I, as thinking, educated, and being educated people come to terms with this. Our new age influenced culture has a place for a mere man or for a phantom, but they have no place for he who is God incarnate. Now, it took until about the middle of the 5th century and the Council of Chalcedon to get it all sorted out. And they put together a statement. Let me share some of it. For those of us who are tempted to think this is somehow a marginal issue, here's what they wrote. We then, following the Holy Fathers all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and substantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly unchangeably, indivisibly, and separately. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, And what substance, that's where hypostasis comes from, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son, only begotten God. The word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. You think they're trying to make a point here with these words? God became human. The last point here of explanation in relation to what Jesus did for us is that he was crucified. He was crucified. Verse 8 says, He humbled himself. Some translations say, He stripped himself, He took off the robe. Verse 8 says, By becoming obedient, the slave subjected himself to the will of the master. The extent of that obedience, verse 8 says, is to the point of death, even death on a cross. B.B. Warfield says, the Lord of the world became a servant in the world. He whose right it was to rule took obedience as his life's characteristic. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11 and 12, the prophet to life's deepest tension. John Lennox in Gunning for God Why the new atheists are missing the target said, there are no simplistic answers to the hard questions thrown up by human suffering. The answer that Christianity gives is not a set of propositions, it is rather a person who suffered. When we think of our life and the pain of death, sickness and brokenness, and we ask is it worth it we look to jesus who being in very nature god did not count equality with god something to be grasped but he emptied himself he took the form of a servant he was born in the likeness of men And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how worth it it is to God. In The King and the Maiden, by Soren Kierkegaard, he says this. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden who lived in a poor village in his kingdom. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist no one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know for sure? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject, he wanted a lover. He wanted her to forget that he was king and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom resolved to descend to her. Clothed as a beggar, he approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loose about him. This was not just a disguise. The king took on a totally new identity. He had renounced his throne to declare his love and to win hers. Christ humbled himself, took on manhood as his identity to win our hearts to him. This is the hypostatic union. I wanna read the words of a song called The Hypostatic Union by Shai Lin. He's a Christian rapper. Uh, I'm just gonna sound a lot more white than he does. I'm just gonna be honest with you when I say this. But these are great words. Our topic of discussion is beyond human comprehension. The infinite God has made a super condescension, the kind of entrance nobody could have anticipated, precipitated by the evil we participated. And through Adam and Eve, our first kin, cursed when they committed the first sin, only if you have the Holy Spirit's antennas can you truly understand fallen man's dilemma. See, only a human can substitute for human lives, but only God can take the wrath of God and survive. See the humanly unsolvable obstacle? With God, all is plausible, nothing's impossible. True haters will fight it, but the story is certain. Two natures united in one glorious person. Jesus, the God-man, official soul reaper, the hypostatic union, it gets no deeper. The Son of God, 100% divinity, self-existent, second person of the Trinity. Magisterial, imperial at the helm, infinitely transcending this material realm. He's so original, getting to know him is pivotal. Behold the invincible, prototypical, holy principle. Possessor of all divine attributes, the omnis, wisdom, grace, beauty, love, wrath, and truth. He's the one that all creation was made through. And by him, the earth's foundation was laid too. Ask the angels, they saw it on pay-per-view. Created Satan too, matter of fact, he created you. And nothing can escape Jesus' sovereign rule from the farthest galaxy to the smallest molecule. So who deserves to gain fame? By the word of his power, the universe is maintained. In other words, put the cosmos back on the shelf. Without Christ, reality would collapse on itself. Jesus, the marvelous author of all consequences, beyond beyond what the sharpest biologist acknowledges. He needs no archaeologist or smart apologist. He sees all hearts, omnipresent cardiologist, master of logic, macrocosmic novelist, following any other god is just preposterous, the son of man, 100% humanity. The mind stretches to understand how can it be. You've got to see what he does, becoming what he wasn't, while never ceasing to be what he was. Is your mind flipping? That got you tripping. See, I sound really white. Yeah. Me too. But the scripture is true, Pete. Philippians 2. By faith we believe this amazing Jesus who made Uranus and Venus became a fetus. It's such a secret that few, if anybody knew it, months later he's covered in amniotic fluid. The subject of the, apo- of the Gospels, praise of apostles, armed with eye sockets, armpits, armpits and nostrils. Who is this Jesus? God clothed in human weakness, super sweetness and peace for the true believers. See the one who never tires, knocked out sleeping. See the source of eternal joy weeping. Which one can explain how the sun abundant with fame who made thunder and rain now has hunger pains. See the creator of water became thirsty on the cross when he saves from the slaughter, the unworthy. My all should be sky high and I ought just to cry, why? With water in my eyes, when the author of life dies, raised on the third, God-man, soul-seeker, the hypostatic union, it gets no deeper. For you, for you. So let's respond to that. Here are seven phrases of application and I'll go quick. Number one, have this mind. Verse five says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours. Pray, read the word, be a part of church. Repent, live in this. This is who you are. The things of God are possible with God. And he wants to work in and through you. And if you have any doubt, you look to what he has done for you. Number two, empty yourself. The text tells us, who, though he is in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself if you think i've arrived i'm the husband i'm the wife i'm the mom i'm the dad i'm the pastor i'm the boss i'm the officer and i deserve this and i deserve to be treated this way god humbled himself empty yourself of all of that and give yourself for the cause of christ number 3 become a servant It says, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The incarnation of Christ Jesus represents the antithesis of the human drive to dominate. Augustine said, no one can be a good leader if he loves his title and not his task. And our task is to serve others out of love for Jesus Christ. Number four, and just for repeating ourselves here, humble yourself. It says in verse eight that he humbled himself. Humility is not in our nature, it's in Christ's nature. And we must choose to yield to the Spirit and allow humility to be what we clothe ourselves with. Number five, become obedient. By becoming obedient, it tells us in the text, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obey God and look to Jesus and the depth of his obedience and trust God. Number six, look to Jesus for joy. What I just talked about, very quickly, is not easy. (laughs) And yet it's what we're called to. It's the mind we have. I remember I was in a coffee shop several years ago. I noticed a lady who had visited my church and ended up not coming to our church, and he was leading a Bible study with a bunch of women, and I was trying not to listen to what they were saying because I was working on something, uh, but they were really loud, and so it was hard not to hear them. And she was talking and she was telling these ladies, okay, you know, about their challenge. She's like, You need a man up. You guys just need a man up. And I was I was struck by that because of one, they were very loud. And secondly, it was a bunch of ladies, and she was telling them to man up. And I was like, I don't really understand this. And I wanted to go over and say to them, I didn't. I wanted to go over and say to them, no. I wanted to read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 to them. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, sin which clings us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, which sounds like man up. But here's what verse two says. Looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, God becoming man, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It wasn't the humanity of Jesus that endured the cross. He didn't man up. It was the divinity of Jesus. He god up. (laughs) It was the joy that was set before him, knowing who the father is and where he was going that caused him to obey. And that's where we look, where we look, and it might seem challenging and tough, but the motivation is the joy that is set before us. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Last point, number seven. Worship team, you can come up. Bow before Jesus. (laughs) No one compares. No one started where Jesus started, and no one finishes where Jesus finishes. Close my Bible too early. Philippians chapter two, verse nine through 11. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no one like him. He deserves our worship. He deserves our surrender. And our response today is to bow before him and say, you deserve all of me. You deserve everything that I have. We talk about how we should be a part of a church and we talk about how we should give and we talk about how we should read the Bible and how we should serve. The reason we do that is not because we have a clever vision statement or we get our doctrinal statement right or because people are the leaders they should be or because you find the people that you find. The reason we give our life to Jesus is because He deserves it. He is God very nature God since the beginning of creation he's never let go of God and he came to the earth he became a man he was obedient to the point of death death on a cross but listen church he rose again on the third day he went back to the throne which is rightly His, and he is coming back for you that's why we live for him let's pray together Jesus you deserve all glory you deserve all honor it is yours you Are all-powerful there is no one like you you are king and how can it be that you would come to the earth for me that you would die on the cross for me you love me that much you love us that much and so our hearts say thank you and live thank you because we owe it all to you. Jesus, have your way in us now. In your name we pray, amen.